Journey into the Unknown. Uh, that's the title that we've given to this new or relatively new Sunday morning teaching series based on the adventures of Abram or Abraham in Genesis 12 to 20. And so far we've already looked at uh, chapters 12 and 13. I'll say more about those in a moment. And so today we arrive at Genesis 14. So if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn with me to it? There should be Bibles in the pews. It's on page uh, 14 of those. Now, as I prepared for this morning, I discovered that uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's one of my favorite Bible commentators, but Walter Brueggemann describes Genesis as the most enigmatic chapter in the book of beginnings. Now, I don't always get big words And so I had to look up enigmatic, and I was relieved or comforted to discover that it means difficult to interpret or understand and mysterious. And the reason I was so relieved to discover that he had said that is because whenever I read through Genesis 14 for the first time, second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time, lots of times, I can honestly say I panicked. I panicked because... I thought, where am I going to go with this? What from these 24 verses am I going to share with the congregation at Windsor Baptist on Sunday? And so, in many ways, Genesis 14 has been for me an all-too-real journey into the unknown. Now, the question is, did I get anywhere? Like, did clarity come? Did the lights go on? Did understanding descend? Well, that remains to be seen. Uh, So, I've said all that by way of introduction, not just as a pre-preached disclaimer or an excuse for a potentially weak sermon, uh, but this is just me being absolutely upfront with you about the struggle I've had this week with Genesis 14. Plus, it's also about recognizing and realizing that whenever you set out on a series Whenever you work your way systematically through a portion of the scriptures, chapter by chapter, you're going to hit the odd nightmare. And Genesis 14, according to many scholars and many commentators and many Christians, is a bit of a nightmare passage. So shall we read it together? Well, before we do that, let's review the journey so far. 75-year-old Abram has been called by God to go and he's gone. And so with the promises of immense blessing ringing in his ears, he leaves Haran and he heads for the land of Canaan. And along with his barren wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, his possessions and all the people that they had acquired, they set out on this journey. First major stress to deal with on the journey is a localised famine. Abram heads for Egypt, which is not a particularly smart choice. He lies, and he gets found out. And he's sent packing by a pharaoh who's confused by Abram's behaviour. He's annoyed at this man. And so he tells him, leave. And Abram needs to retrace his steps. He needs to re-engage his heart. He needs to reconnect his relationship with God, which he does at a place called Bethel. And then, in an act of selfless generosity, he gives his nephew Lot the first choice of the land. Because their current context can't quite cope with them. 
Lot now faces, and we looked at this two weeks ago, Lot now faces a major choice. But he doesn't stop to consider the impact of his choice on his soul. And so he lives by sight rather than by faith. And he opts for the well-watered plain of Jordan. The prospect of having more, of getting richer, even though he was already well off, it was so appealing to him. And although he risked massive compromise, he still decided to head for an environment where God was a footnote. To head to a place where the values of God were virtually non-existent. So Lot goes, and although he initially pitches his tent near Sodom, it's not long before he's living right in Sodom. He's up to his neck in it. In a place where people were wicked, according to Genesis 13, and sin was rampant. And Abram was left to go west. But God actually takes Abram to a place and says, just look all around you, Abram. Look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west, because I am going to give you all the land. And I'm going to give it to you and to your numerous descendants. And I'm going to give it to you forever. And so Abram takes a walk, and then he heads off to live at a place called Hebron. And that's where we left his story two weeks ago. Now, let's stand and read Genesis 14. Okay, let's read this. At the time, there were four kings with very long names, and they went out to war against five kings with equally long names. And all these latter kings, verse 3, joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. And for 12 years, they had been subject to Kedolomer. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedolomer and the kings who were allied with him went out and defeated all those other kings. Verse 7. Then they turned back and went to En Mishfat, that is Kadesh. And they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hezeon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and a whole lot of other kings, they drew battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedalamer and all his allies. Now the valley of Siddim, verse 10, was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into these tar pits, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Ishkol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedolamar and the kings allied with him, he, the, sorry, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people, and keep the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept not, nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anar, Eschol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So what's all that about? What I want to do is I want to work our way through this. Uh, And I want to start with the first 11 verses where we have a war. And it's the first recorded war in Scripture. Four kings have formed a coalition. But the main player is Ketalamar, who's the king of Elam, which is modern Iran. And they go to war against five other kings which includes the kings of two well-known places, Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as an aside, and I think it's worth pointing out, that Abraham's adventure with God takes place in the context of a broken and divided world. His journey of faith happened in a hostile environment where conflict was real and man's inhumanity to man was tangible. Abraham wasn't a recluse, isolated from the real world as he worked out what it meant to follow God. All around him as he journeyed, there was tension, there was pressure, there was dysfunction, and there was pain. And here we sit, four millennia later, and we find ourselves living for God against a similar backdrop. It would be great It would be absolutely great if we could journey with God, sheltered from the harsh realities of a fractured world. But we don't. We live surrounded by mess. And it's in the context of that mess that we journey with God. Just like Abraham. Back to the story. For 12 years... The five kings had been subject to Ketalamer. But in the 13th year, which is unlucky for some apparently, the five kings decide, we've had enough. We've had enough and so they launch a rebellion. And in response, and in the 14th year, Ketalamer and his allies decide, we're going to stamp our authority all over the place. And they begin by defeating a whole crowd of ites that I didn't mention. It was the Raphaites, the Zuzites, the Emites, the Horites, the Amalekites, the Amorites. And then after they have done that, they find themselves facing up to the five rebel kings in the valley of Sidim, which is the Dead Sea Valley. But as it turns out, you'll have noticed, there wasn't much of a war. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah actually did a runner. And some of their army and some of the coalition army fell into tar pits, while everybody else fled and ran for the hills. The battle was over. And so Kedalomar 
and his three other king friends seize all the goods, they seize all the food of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they go away. And that takes us up to verse 11. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, what was all that about? What have those 11 verses got to do with anything? Why so much emphasis? Why so much information? Why so many details about a relatively insignificant skirmish? In terms of Abram's story, what was the point of those first 11 verses of chapter 14? Why did the writer of Genesis bother to record them? And those are all, I want to suggest, good questions, fair questions. At least they are until you come to verse 12. Thank goodness for verse 12, which someone has described as the news behind the news. We needed to hear all that information because of what we discover in verse 12. Because here's the reason we needed to know about that conflict. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. You see, at that moment, this all becomes personal. Surrounding events impact Abram's immediate world. And so now it takes on a whole new dimension. But before we look at Abram's response, what I want you to realize is that in a very real sense, Genesis chapter 14 verse 12 acts as a sad commentary on Lot's decision in verse in chapter 13. You see, Lot, you'll remember, had been fueled by self-interest. He had walked all over Abram's generosity. And he'd walked all over it by opting for personal gain. Despite the clear risk to his soul and his spiritual well-being, he just decided, I'm going to look after me. I'm going to put self first. And now, within a very short space of time, all that he had acquired, all that he accumulated, all that he had established, all that Lot had hoped for was gone. And I want you to imagine what must have gone through Lot's head as he's being carted off. As him and all his possessions are being carried off by Ketelammer and co, what was going through his mind? Regret? Guilt? Despair? I'd been so free. But now I've had my freedom ripped from me and I face a lifetime of slavery. And that must have hurt. You see, the grass, as often as the case, seems so much greener on the other side. The appeal of what looks so attractive can seem so inviting and yet can be so dangerous and deceptive. To quote from the Merchant of Venice, all that glitters is not gold. Often have you heard that told. Many a man his life has sold. Did Lot sell his life? Did he sell his soul? It must have felt like that as he's being carted off. And I wonder how many in our society today continue to do that in search of fortune and fame. I wonder how many of us, I wonder have I, ran that risk and have allowed the culture to squeeze me into its mould 
And therefore slowly but surely. I'm in danger of losing my own soul. As Jesus Christ once asked so directly and provocatively. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world? But you lose your own soul. And the answer is obvious. If only I would admit it. And as I was preparing for this morning, I read a report called Gaining the World But Losing Your Soul. A study of wealth, of status, and of happiness and justice by a guy called Dave Andrews who's based in Australia. Fascinating read here. Let me pull out two quotes. One reason that wealth and status and success do not lead to happiness is that the very idea that the pursuit of wealth, status, and success could lead to happiness is an illusion. Another quote. Another reason that wealth and status and success do not lead to happiness is that the single most reliable universal indicator of happiness is connectedness with family and friends. And, in reality, the pursuit of wealth and status and success devalues, distorts and destroys true connectedness with family and friends. And I wonder that as Lot was being carried off by Kedalamer and the other three kings, did he lament pursuing an illusion? And did he realize that his desire for personal gain had potentially destroyed his connectedness with his family? Specifically with Abram. And I wonder again how many in our society, and I include myself in this, how many in our society are going to wake up to the illusion and begin investing in actually what really matters. And what really matters are relationships. Remember our question from two weeks ago? And it's worth asking. Every time you face a major choice, particularly where money is involved, how might this choice affect my soul? Back to the text and the story. Now, Abraham might have known something about that war. I don't know how local news was related. But he certainly didn't know the specifics. That was until a guy who had been one of the ones who had escaped and ran to the hills, decided to make his way to Abram and tell him what had happened to his nephew, Lot. So now what's going to happen? How is Abram going to respond to this news? And at one level, you could be forgiven by thinking Abraham could have said, Lot, you've made your bed. Now lie in it. With poor choices come poor consequences. You're on your own. Live with that. But he doesn't. That's not what Abraham does. This is one of Abraham's great moments. But before we look at what he actually does, there's a really surprising discovery here. Or at least it was a huge surprise to me. You see, Abraham, as it turns out, is a military genius. He's a strategic thinking fighter. And I have to be honest, that is an aspect of Abram's life and story that I did not know or I did not fully appreciate. Whenever I think of Abram, I do not think of this warrior, this commander-in-chief. I do not think of a military strategist. I don't know how you have always perceived Abram. That, I must admit, is not how I would have seen him. 
And the other thing you discover is that he quite likes a challenge because verse 14 tells that he calls out 318. Now that's quite specific. He calls out 318 trained men who are born in his household. Abraham has his own personal army, his internal special force. But 318 against four kings and their entire armies, numbers unknown, but bound to be more than 318, well, that's brave. That's actually Gideon-like. And the numbers are a wee bit similar. And so it seems that Abraham actually went with this special force because this was personal. And so Abraham, commander-in-chief of his own liberation army, he divides his men and he launches a nighttime attack. Again, Gideon-like. And it says that he routes Kedalamar and the kings allied with him. He chases them some distance. And in the process, he recovers all the goods. But more importantly than recovering all the goods is what we discover in verse 16. Have a look at it. It says that he brings back Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Mission is accomplished. The prodigal is sought. The prodigal is found. The prodigal returns. And I love, I know this is something you know about me, I actually love the Bible and the stories of the Bible. Because sometimes I think we miss so much. And I know when it comes to this chapter of Genesis and this stage of Abram's story, I have missed so much of this in the past. But what actually can we learn from that? Well, here's a key one for me. Whenever someone close to you makes a bad choice, And whenever that bad choice affects you personally, don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. Whenever the wheels come off, whenever it all starts to go horribly wrong for that family member or for that friend, because of the choices that they have made, don't be too quick to adopt the I told you so line. Or stand in judgment, or wait for an apology, or demand that they come crawling back to you with cap in hand. Be prepared, and this is what I think is one of the lessons from this story. Be prepared to pursue them, to rescue them, and to bring them back home. I'm not suggesting that you initiate an all-out assault. But I am just saying, please, and I've seen this happen both positively and negatively, please, Maintain the contact. Keep the door open. Don't turn your back. Be creative and strategic in finding ways to show that person that you still care, despite despite the poor choices they've made. As I was preparing for this and I was reflecting on this, I realized that things like that are very easy to say from a pulpit. It's very easy for me to stand up here and say something like that. And yet... I know that for some people sitting here this morning, the prospect of doing that is really difficult. Because sometimes the choices that others have made are so serious and so painful on us and to us that we need distance, that we actually need space, that we need time apart before we go looking for them again. And even when we do go looking for them again, and even when we do reconnect with them, and even when we do go to pursue them, to rescue them, to bring them back home, the relationship may never be the same again. So I'm not underestimating the challenge of going after those who have walked away having made poor choices. 
But I do think there are times when we need to be prepared to step outside of our comfort zones, step outside of our natural reactions, because often the reactions we have are perfectly legitimate and natural. In order to offer and show grace, in order to give people what they don't deserve. And as I say, I've seen this happen at times, and and I was was trying to think of a specific that I could share, and I'm not not really going to share anything too specific. But I remember as, as, as a youth worker in a sort of previous life, that I saw time and time again young people making really stupid choices which broke their parents' hearts. Choices that made no sense at all. And they just walked away from parental love and care and walked away from all they had ever known and been brought up to believe in and respect. And it broke parents' hearts. And I've seen parents react very differently to that. And some just shut down all lines of communication. Others kept those lines of communication open. And all I would say is if there's someone in your life who's made a stupid choice and has walked away, don't give up on them. Despite how really hard that is. Maybe I've taken that too far. That's for you to discern. Abraham then returns from his victorious crusade And and this is where it gets really interesting because when he returns from his victorious crusade, he meets two characters, but they're chalk and cheese. Two totally different characters. Now, what you've got to realize is that in everybody's eyes, Abram was returning as a hero. What he has done has been amazing. And so how Abraham deals with that is going to reveal a lot about him. And the first person that he meets is Bera, the king of Sodom. And that makes sense, seeing as Abram is actually bringing back all his goods, which Ketelomer had taken off him. But before we find out what Bera says to Abram, from out of nowhere, it seems, steps the king of Salem, wherever that is. And he steps out and he steps onto the scene, the shadowy figure, with bread and wine. And his name is Melchizedek, who, as it turns out, is not only a king, according to the text, but he's also a priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek proceeds to bless Abram with words that Abram absolutely needs to hear. Verses 19-20. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, why is it that Abram needs so desperately to hear those words? Because primarily they reminded Abram that his victory was God's, it wasn't his. That behind Abram's success was God most high. The glory belonged to God, not Abram. And so before he got carried away with his own achievements, Abram needed to get things in perspective. He needed to maintain the focus. He needed to remember the covenant from Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember what it said? It's God who's going to make Abram into a great nation. It's God who's going to bless him. It's God who will make him great. It's God who will curse those who curse him. It's got nothing to do with you, Abram. God's going to do this. And so before the king of Sodom and all the people of Sodom, etc., start putting Abram on a pedestal and start singing his praises and playing him with gifts and adoration, Abram needs to realize that who he is and what he does is all because of God. 
And it's a huge challenge here on how we handle success. Because before Abram thinks he is a someone, Melchizedek steps onto the scene at exactly the right moment and keeps Abram's feet on the ground and his heart and his eyes in the right direction. As he offers him bread and as he offers him wine and as he expresses praise to God Most High. And for me, this is such a critical and defining moment in Abram's journey because the temptation to want, the temptation to receive worship from others is massive. Absolutely massive. It feels so good whenever someone praises us. It feels so good whenever we're acclaimed, whenever we're adored, whenever we are put on someone's pedestal. And how we handle those moments is critical for our faith journey. And it's at those moments, and it was at this moment, that Abram could have lost his soul. But thankfully, as the result of a great king and a priest who helped him to stay focused, Abram retains his integrity, retains his commitment, retains his heart, and retains his focus. And in response to this, Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything, which is a tangible way of confirming, listen, God does deserve the glory. And here's my way of expressing that. And then the king of Sodom, Bera, reappears. And he makes an interesting offer at this point. He says to Abram, Abram, give me the people. See all the people you've brought back. Give me them. But I tell you what, you can keep the goods for yourself. Now there's a certain amount of cheek in that suggestion. And the reason there's a certain amount of cheek in that suggestion is because by right, and everybody would have known this, all the spoils belong to the victor. He didn't have to give anything to anyone. They're his. He won them. But nevertheless, Abraham replies, or says something to Bera, that must have come as a huge shock. An even bigger shock than the fact that Abraham has just given a share of the spoils to this shadowy figure, the king of Salem. That would, that would have been a shock. He's just given 10% of everything that belongs to the king of Sodom to some guy called Melchizedek. But what he then says to Bera is incredible. Verses 22-23. I have sworn to the Lord God most high creator of heaven and earth, which is a phrase he's borrowed from Melchizedek, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Brilliant. An amazing response. Because what it reveals is that as a result of his encounter with Melchizedek, Abram is able to withstand temptation. The temptation to do what? To accumulate more. Much more than he ever needed. Because according to Genesis 13, verse 2, we know that Abram's rich. He's really rich. He didn't need anything more, but the temptation here was to take it. But because of his encounter with Melchizedek, He didn't. But we also discover that as a result of realigning his thinking in the context of worship, that having eaten bread and drunk wine and had his attention drawn to God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth, he is then able to deal with the pressure to compromise. It spills out from a context of worship. 
And he's also then able to ensure that it's God and God alone who's glorified. Because man's chief end really is to glorify God. And as I read that story, I wondered what would have happened if the king of Sodom had spoken before Melchizedek got to Abram. I wonder would the story have all turned out very differently. It's just a thought. So what's in that for us? Well, if nothing else, it acts as a vivid reminder about the importance of taking moments. Moments on your own. Moments with others like this in order that you stay focused. In order to remember and recognize that God is in control. That all that we have actually belongs to God. That any success in our life is as a result of God. That God deserves the glory. It's not about me. And as I say, that for me spills out of a context where we constantly are realigning our thinking and maintaining our perspective. Bread, wine, praise. We all face daily temptations to compromise, to lose our souls, to be consumed by self. And whenever we give in to those, then like Lot, what we may find is that we're being carried further and further away from home. Plus, the other thing for me is this. We need people on our journeys. We need people like Melchizedek, who God uses to minister into our lives at key moments. People who draw alongside us. People who say, David, where's the focus? What are you and God working on at the moment? How's your soul? People who journey with us. In a sense, that's me done. And I know there's some people thinking, hang on a minute, Melchizedek? It's like, is he not like really important? You need to say so much more about him. Based on Genesis 14, no. Don't think you do. But challenge me after on that one. Let me pray. And as we pray... And as our heads are bowed, I'm just going to ask you a number of questions as a way of reflecting, and then Bennett's going to come and close our service. Please respond to these questions as as you feel appropriate. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Does it feel at times that life is dictated by the pursuit of an illusion? That having more will somehow lead to a happier, better life? Have you sacrificed? Or are you in danger of sacrificing connectedness with those around you? Those who matter to you in the pursuit of personal gain? Is there someone close to you? who as a result of their poor choices is not in a good place? Will you reach out to them this week, even though their choices have affected you? Have you accomplished something recently? 
and taken the plaudits and forgotten to give the glory to God? Who is there in your life that helps you stay focused? And who could you help this week to maintain perspective? Father, we continue to pray that you would give us the energy to value relationships, to go extra mile to show your grace. Father, give us the strength to handle success and give us the wisdom and to retain our focus on you. For is it for your glory that you've been created? Help us to be like Melchizedek, Father, to encourage and focus and guide people And above all, be a witness so that people could see you in our lives. Lord, at this moment we also remember our families and friends who are not well. Lord, we pray that your healing hand would touch them and your grace be upon them. We especially remember Joanne Glasgow, Father, at this time as they're going through as a family a difficult time and her dad is facing this sickness. Help them, Lord. Give them your grace. We also remember Eugene at this difficult time and his sickness. Lord, we pray that you would have compassion on them and support them. Help them, Lord, in your mercy. Father, we also pray for our political leaders. Give them wisdom, the strength to change, and a vision for the state. Pray for Christians who are in government and political positions. Let their lives be a witness and stand for the oppressed and the marginalized. Help them to stand for justice and be as a light. Father, we also remember Haiti at this time. Bless all those people, Lord, with various needs and with so many questions in their heart. We also pray for the people who are working with those people. Give them the physical and emotional strength to carry the good work that they are doing. And fathers, we pray that soon that they would see the sovereign God not only created but who sustains and intervenes in humanity. Lord, we also remember people 
who have not been able to be with us this morning. Though there are different situations, we pray that we are united in spirit in whatever situation they are. Father, help them, Lord, and let your peace be with them and your comfort and staff would uphold them. We ask everything in your precious name. Amen.